Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us, letting us be part of your day. We really appreciate it. Well, after a very dangerous and stormy night in parts of the country, especially in that Nashville area, we hope you are safe and well today. And here's what we'll be talking about. The push continues in the Senate to try to get an ag labor bill passed. Jim Baer, president and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association, will join us about those efforts. We're going to talk markets with Steve Nicholson with Robo AgriFinance. And the pork industry continues to respond to these imitation meat products in the marketplace. We'll talk with Dr. Dan Kovich with the National Pork Producers Council. But we'll start things off with DTN reporter Todd Neely. Todd, thank you for joining us. And, wow, do we ever have a lot to talk about. Let's focus on on biofuels. Uh, USDA announcing its $100 million infrastructure plan. And also Secretary Purdue out there talking about how EPA is going to cut back on the number of exemptions that it grants to the RFS. I guess if we were in Washington, D.C., we would be camped outside the EPA offices, right, <laughs> waiting for the word, uh, waiting for some kind of announcement. Uh, what are you th- expecting to hear from EPA on this? Well, Mike, uh, yeah, thanks for having me today. Um, you know, I'm not really sure at this point. Uh, you know, Secretary Purdue last week made, uh, made the, um, the statement that uh, whatever happens from EPA, he, he sees it as kind of a moot point because the agency's already addressed what it's going to do about the waiver situation. Uh, but I think that the Tenth Circuit ruling, I, I do think that that has changed it, changed things a little bit at EPA. Um, I don't know exactly what they're going to talk about or what, what they're going to do, but I do think that uh, it's quite clear at this point that the agency probably has to apply that Tenth Circuit Court ruling nationally. Otherwise, you know, we'd have about a third of all small refineries that would be uh, under the auspices of that ruling uh, and two-thirds that weren't. And so that's something that EPA could not actually allow. Uh, So I suspect that we're going to have some sort of an announcement uh, talking about maybe further further directives from the EPA on, on that. But it'll be interesting to see. I do know that uh, you know, a lot of people are waiting to hear this is one of those issues that wasn't put to bed at the end of last year. And I think maybe we might be getting a little bit closer to that. For the biofuels industry, this is as close as they've been to, to a, finally getting this issue addressed, which has been the thorn in their side, getting these uh, waivers, uh, this policy changed by EPA. So they're really hailing, of course, that 10th Circuit ruling. But those who are critics of the RFS, including a group of senators from oil states, they're wanting the administration to appeal that ruling. Most think that won't happen. Do you think there's any chance EPA would appeal it? I, You know, Mike, honestly, I don't. And I say that because, uh, generally speaking, the Tenth Circuit, um, it's only allowed like a full circuit hearing on cases only like 10% of the time. Um, so it'd be rather it'd be rather shocking if, if they went to that length at this point. Um, you know, and I think as we, you know, with this presidential election coming up, you know, uh, I think we've seen the administration try to tie up a lot of loose ends when it comes to things that have happened uh, that have affected rural America. You know, we saw the trade agreements and so on. Um, I can't see 
uh, the administration then deciding at this point to appeal that ruling. And, you know, you look at the, you look at the state of things and I, and I don't think that, uh, you know, there'd be all that great amount of success in convincing the 10th circuit to even take the case. And we'll also point out on the biofuels front that the USDA plans to increase its use of biofuels. And uh, so there, there are quite a few things going on there. Secretary Purdue issuing a memo directing USDA to acquire alternative fuel vehicles, including those that can use E85 or biodiesel when replacing conventionally fueled vehicles. So they're making quite a push on biofuels at USDA. Yeah, certainly, you know, and I think it's interesting when you look at USDA, it really makes you wonder why, uh, you know, the, the idea of replacing the vehicle fleets uh, with biofuels uh, cars, uh, why that wasn't done, you know, a long mm-hmm. time ago. I mean, obviously, we've heard a lot uh, from USDA officials over the over the years about how they support the industry and the things that they're doing and so on. And this seems like a, a real obvious thing. And so, yeah, it, it was probably long overdue. Um, you know, and they've also decided to put a hundred million dollars, uh, you know, up for, for grants, uh, you know, in terms of building out infrastructure for higher blends. And so it definitely is going to give a big boost to the industry. It, you know, it's kind of a longer term thing. I think, uh, everyone in this industry knows that it's not going to happen overnight, especially with things like E15 and so on. And, uh, I think that for the longer term, this is definitely some good, some good news. We're talking with DTN reporter. Todd Neely. All right, Todd, another um, perhaps precedent-setting court ruling has taken place in Ohio. Uh, a federal court in Ohio threw out the city of Toledo's Lake Erie Bill of Rights. What What are the implications here? Well, you know, Mike, we had a farmer in Ohio. His name was Mark Drews. Uh, he lives in Custer, Ohio. He had challenged uh, the city after it passed this law. Uh, basically, this law uh, would allow any citizen to sue on behalf of the lake. Um, and so it really opened up a lot of farmers, not just in Ohio, but anyone living along uh, Lake Erie would have been subject to a lot of a lot of legal pressure. And uh, basically the court said that the way the law was written was completely unconstitutional. Uh, in fact, the judge in the case even said that this wasn't even close. Um, and so this is a good thing because, you know, there's a lot going on in that region in terms of trying to reduce nutrients runoff and so on. Uh, you know, the state of Ohio itself has uh, put forward a plan to do that. And so I think, you know, as we've seen in Iowa, it hasn't been as successful in Iowa as I think people would have liked. But, you know, we are seeing that a lot of states are looking at these issues and saying that the voluntary way of cutting nutrients is really the way to go. And so this is uh, this ruling in Ohio is going to allow that to actually uh, unfold in Ohio now. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how this affects, as you said, other states and efforts in other states. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I think that, uh, you know, that's kind of been the, the back and forth over the past decade or so is whether uh, whether agriculture needs to be forced to cut to cut nutrients uh, to improve conservation and a lot of the things we talk about. But now I think you've seen across the country, there's just a lot of, uh, a lot of people talking about, you know, the voluntary efforts and, and states putting more money where their mouth is and so on. And so I think we'll probably see that, that, uh, that movement kind of grow at this point. All right. Interesting times. Todd, good to talk with you. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Mike. Take care. DTN reporter Todd Neely. 
Well, we've been following this uh, legislation that would uh, address the ag labor situation in this country. Finally, a bill got passed in the House, but it has not uh, made its way through the Senate. And there are a number of ag groups pushing hard to try to get something done in the Senate on these on this very important issue. One of those groups is the U.S. Apple Association. We'll talk with their president and CEO, Jim Baer, about the latest push on this ag labor bill. Stay with us. We'll have the latest next on AOA. There's more than one way to measure success. Knowing how to measure success on your soybean acres? That's smart. In 2019 trials, Credenz CZ0419 GTLL had a 2.3 bushel per acre advantage over a competitive Asgro variety in North Dakota. So plant your sign of success. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Credenz for a precise variety that fits your field. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. The push to get an ag labor bill passed continues. The work is being done in the Senate. Jim Baer, president and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association, joins us now to bring us up to date. Jim, thanks for being with us. We've been watching this for some time. you got legislation passed in the House. Now you're working in the Senate Give us an update. How close are you to getting something done there? Hey, great to be with you, Mike. Well, there are uh, Republicans and Democrats in the Senate are working together to write their own version of a bill. It'll be different than the House bill, but in any case, they're working, and we're very much in supportive of that effort. We're working with our friends and the uh, other segments of agriculture, not just specialty crops like potatoes and fruits and vegetables, but also the segments of agriculture that need year-round labor, like dairy farms and hog confinements, and they've never had a legal means of using uh, immigrant labor. And so we're all pushing as hard as we can. Uh, President Trump has recently acknowledged that the U.S. needs immigrant workers. In fact, he hires immigrants for his farm in Virginia. So I don't have to tell your listeners that farm work is hard, and unfortunately most Americans don't want to do work like that anymore. So uh, we're very excited about the prospect of getting this fixed once and for all. Jim, what are the key areas that you hope to see addressed in whatever legislation is finally passed? Well, uh, it's important to note, first of all, that this is not a amnesty. I don't even like using that word uh, for workers that are here on, on falsely documented papers currently. Uh, working in agriculture, for them to get right with the law, they'd have to pay a hefty fine. Uh, But it would at least put them on a path where they could come out of the dark and work legally in agriculture and provide ag the labor that it so desperately needs. So that's that's an important point. Um, And it would also streamline and make uh, improvements to the current H-2A visa program, which is the only legal means uh, currently of using immigrant, (coughs) immigrant labor. Uh, it's very expensive. It costs about $2,000 per worker because you have to provide permanent housing and so forth. So uh, I know 
growers in my industry that, that will take a thousand workers during harvest time. So that means they've spent $2 million before the first apple gets picked. Uh, so it's, it's not cheap, but at the same time, as I already said, it's hard to find people that want to work in these, uh, hard jobs. They pay pretty well, but it's hard to find people. So we're going to make, uh, our best effort, improve the current visa program and, and, uh, have the people that are here working in ag now, uh, that are here, uh, on, on false papers, get them right with the law and move forward. We're talking with Jim Baer, president and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association. Jim, do you have estimates of how much, just in your industry alone, just in the Apple industry, how much is lost each year due to a lack of uh, a labor force? Mike, I talk to family farmers almost every day who tell me that they had to leave apples on the trees to rot because they couldn't get enough workers to pick them. As a former farm boy myself, I'm, I'm offended by that, and I think most farmers would be uh, would find that offensive as well you know you work hard to all year long to get a crop and then right at the point when you need to harvest it and you can't get workers to to uh, to bring the harvest in and that's that's just sad and that happens every year we need to we need to get that fixed um as far as an actual number i don't know because if you don't pick it it's hard to count it but uh it's clearly going to be in the in the tens of millions of dollars just in our industry alone and, you know, going back to the House bill, some people said it couldn't be done, particularly in the overheated political environment here in Washington, D.C. these days. A lot of people said that the Republicans and Democrats couldn't come together to pass a bill, and they were proven wrong. And it was a bipartisan bill. Uh, the Democrats are in charge of the House, but there were conservative Republicans from farm country that came on and and helped support that bill and and uh, put their weight behind it as well. I think that's just an indication that people understand the need for ag labor these days. You know, we can we can import the labor or we can import the food, one or the other, and many people agree that it makes a lot more sense for us to grow the food here in the United States with all of our natural advantages and efficiencies. So if you've got to get a bill passed in the Senate, then a... Go to a conference and come up with a final bill, and then get it passed, uh, signed by the president. So, still a ways to go, but I know the the push is still on. Um, meanwhile, we look at some other issues. Last time we talked, you were very excited about the signing of the Phase One trade deal with China because of the export opportunities for uh, not only agriculture in general, but your industry, the apple industry in particular. Well, things are kind of on hold now with the coronavirus situation and just the unknown of when China will really step up a lot of its purchases. How concerned are you about China living up to its obligations under that phase one trade deal? Well, we're very concerned. That was a new market for us. We just got it open in, in 2015, and it, in three years, it quickly grew to be uh, a, a top six export market for us, and that uh kind of all got changed. The brakes got pumped when uh, the trade dispute started. We're cautiously optimistic, but even if we could snap our fingers and make coronavirus go away, uh, it's going to take weeks and maybe months for the velocity of trade to get back to where it was before. My colleagues in the meat industry, for example, report that uh, cold storage in the port locations in China is is full, and uh, uh, China has reduced manpower in the ports, uh, reduced the number of truck drivers, and so even if we could get that, these problems fixed immediately, it's going to take a while to 
for China to gear up. So uh, that's a long answer to a short question, and I guess uh, everybody's in a wait-and-see mode, but we're, we're desperate for a win. We're desperate for a trade win of any kind, and we're really anxious to see that get fixed. How important was USMCA to the Apple industry as we wait for Canada to approve it? Well, for the Apple industry, as well as for most of our friends across different segments of U.S. agriculture, it was the most important thing. Mexico is our number one uh, purchaser, our number one export market, followed by Canada. And those two alone bought, uh, in a so-called normal year, would buy about a half a billion dollars worth of U.S. apples. And that's true for a lot of segments of agriculture. So we had free trade. We thought we might lose it. But in the end, with the passage of USMCA, uh, we've got it locked in, and I think that's an important positive signal to, to farmers in all segments of agriculture, and we're, we're really thankful and appreciative of Congress uh, and the President for getting that done. So are trade and labor then your top two issues that you're dealing with here in 2020? Yes, by far. We hear talk about you know, trying to get a free trade agreement with the European Union, that's kind of hard to see for agriculture, maybe for other industries, manufacturing and so forth. Maybe that's a possibility. But so long as the EU has its unscientific regulations regarding uh, the use of modern production tools, pesticides, and other compounds that we use in agriculture here in the U.S., so long as those are uh, not allowed in the in the EU, it's hard to see that we're going to export much there by certainly in the way of, of fruits and vegetables and, and probably grains and oil seeds too if they don't change their GM uh, regulatory process. So you know, we'd, everybody would love to get a new market in the EU, but so long as they insist on their precautionary principle about food safety and, and uh, pesticide residues, it's hard to see that that's going to uh, really amount to much. I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah, that seems like a big challenge indeed. Um, other than labor, what's your biggest domestic challenge and issue for the Apple industry? Well, as your listeners are well aware, agriculture is a business with razor-thin margins, currently maybe even negative margins in a lot of cases. And with our trade um, disputes, our exports are down about a third, and we normally export a third of the crop. So that means we've lost one-sixth of our markets. And in a business with razor-thin margins, you can't afford to lose one-sixth of your markets. And so um, we've got too many apples in the United States right now. Um, prices are, are really bad. And in, in what is a cruel irony, going back to the EU, uh, the EU is pushing hard on this administration to get access for their fruit to come into the United States. And we think that that's just ridiculous, that if we can't ship our, our ag products to Europe, why would we allow them to access our market? That just doesn't make any sense. We hope that the president will stay strong in his commitment to fair trade and tell the Europeans, hey, look, if you want to ship here, then open your markets and let's make it an equal playing field in both directions. And we'd be happy to support okay. that. All right, Jim, thanks. Hey, I'm, I'm trying to help. I'm, I'm eating more apples, okay? <laughs> Do your best, Mike. I know you are. All right. 
Okay, Jim Baer, President and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association. Up next, we'll talk markets with Steve Nicholson with Bravo AgriFinance. Stay with us here on AOA. There's more than one way to measure success. Knowing how to measure success on your soybean acres? That's smart. In 2019 trials, Credenz CZ1859 GTLL had a 2.9 bushel per acre advantage over a competitive Asgro variety in South Dakota. So plant your sign of success. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Credenz for a precise variety that fits your field. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, whether it's the stock market or commodity markets, it's kind of a wild ride these days. Let's talk markets with Steve Nicholson, grain and oil seeds analyst for Rabo AgriFinance. Steve, good to talk with you again. What do you make of this little surge we have right now with uh, commodity yeah. markets? Yeah, good morning, Mike. Uh, yeah, there's a lot going on, to say the least. You know, I think this is, you know, what do you say? I mean, it, there's been so much. I don't even know where to start. There's been so much uncertainty, uh, which markets don't like. There's been a lot of, um, you know, a lot of not knowing which direction we're going, uh, which is increased volatility, which is not a bad thing uh, if you're a trader or even if you're a buyer or seller. Uh, you've gotten both upside and downside potential. Um, I think the market's trying to sort out what does this mean for in a whole number of senses. So the you know the Fed reduced uh, interest rates 50 points this morning. You know the stock market's up. Uh, it hasn't it hasn't had a huge surge yet this morning. And so the question is, that doesn't solve the coronavirus problem. It solves the stock market problem, but it doesn't solve. I mean, it solves it solves one problem for the stock market, but it doesn't solve coronavirus. So the market's trying to figure. Okay, that's really good, but do we get do we see trade resume? And the and the and the answer is probably not, because you still have this. I don't want to say a lot of fear about uh, the coronavirus. Uh, does it shut ports down? Does it shut international commerce down? Uh, does it? You know, people don't go to work because they're concerned about you know infection. It just creates all sorts of certainty. And so I think the market. You know, we've really. You know, I will say just. You know, quickly when you think about what the market's done over the last 30 days, it's been kind of a steady downstream um, move, and so the market's going to have some response, like the stock market, you know, to the to the upside as it as it makes a move, makes a decision as to which way it's going to continue. Is it going to continue on the downward side, or is it going to continue on the upward side? And I think the market just doesn't know. It just, as I said, a lot of uncertainty and volatility here, and a lot of fear that the market markets don't tend to deal with well. They tend to react and be very um, very overreact. So you know that you know if we react to the overreact to the downside, it provides opportunities for buyers. If we overreact to the upside, it provides an opportunity for sellers. And that's certainly something I think you have to be very conscious of because you look at Discorn now at 385. Um, it's not four dollars, but it's better than where it was. Uh, you look at November beans, you're back up above nine dollars again. So you've got some you've got some things going on here that from a producer standpoint of view, may not be a bad thing to be paying attention to here right before planting. But a lot of fear in the market and uncertainty. So speaking of planting, it'll be nice to get back to talking about things like planting and, uh, you know, the traditional things we talk about. Uh, but, I mean, we can't, obviously can't ignore 
what's going yeah. on and we as you said the uncertainty we just don't know where this is going to go or how long it is going yeah. to last have you seen and here's something else we've talked about the reluctance yeah. of farmers for whatever reason mfp payments or whatever to let go of grain in storage are we seeing any of that starting to loosen up yet or not um, not yet. Um, I have not. I've been on the road the last ten days, and so I haven't looked at basis levels to see what they've been doing in the country here in the last couple three days. But there doesn't appear to be any evidence that you know farmers are letting go uh, of grain, you know, in the countryside. Uh, he would, and I would say, you know, you look at what the market's doing today. Um, you know, basis levels, you know, here in the recent past have have indicated that you know they're not getting enough enough selling and so they've had to increase base levels to get to coax grain out of the country i think a couple things to think about is that one when we look at or there's actually more than a couple so one is you know there's a lot of stories going around and, and i haven't got a, a definite story a lot of concern i think is the best way to put a lot of concern about quality of the grain that's in the bin um, you know, it was dried, it was wet, it was all sorts of things when it went in last fall. Uh, you know, we've had a, a, we've had cold weather, so it's been preserved pretty well, but as this weather starts to warm up, and here in St. Louis over the next five or six days, we're seeing 55, 60-degree temperatures. You know, what is the quality of that grain? And so that's probably one thing to be thinking about. Um, the market also, you know, we're now into March, and we're 30, what's it, we're 20, what, 28 days from you know, prospective plan report, and, you know, a lot of people are expecting pretty big numbers in that, and that that's going to be, if if that's realized, and that's going to put a lot of downward pressure on grain prices, um, and so then that becomes the next point is, do you move some grain now to get ahead of uh, the, the acreage report? Um, and as an old farmer told me once, he said, I can store money just as well as I can store grain without the quality issues or the, the values going up and down. So, you know, I think there's a lot to think about right now for producers who have grain in storage um, and think about conditions, think about markets going forward, and is it worth maybe moving some of that grain off the farm now and getting it done. We're talking with Steve Nicholson with Robo AgriFinance. It'll be interesting, Steve. We've seen a little bit of an improvement in, in the weather, some little less moisture, yeah. a little more drying in some places. If there would happen to be a really good window, a widespread window for planting early on, I got to believe you know, a lot of corn will go in the ground. That, that corn acre number might go up. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, I think there's a couple things, and we have to, I, you know, I guess my my thinking is from a producer standpoint. I I know whether I mean they're thinking about I didn't get it planted this year, but guy by gosh, I'm going to get it done this year. Um, and you're right. If there's a window, uh, they're going to get it done. And I, and I think we have to kind of talk about the Corn Belt in regions and think about it. If you look at soil moisture maps and look at percentile of normalcy, you're still on that northern plains. And I'm going to talk the Dakotas, Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin. Um, it's still 95, 100% um, of normal up there. So it's still very wet. And we were, I was talking to a crop insurance guy in South Dakota and, and he was saying it's still very wet, particularly north of I-90. Now, I had I had to make a quick run to Des Moines over the weekend from St. Louis, and, and I was surprised. I mean, the ground still looks wet between here and Des Moines, uh, but it does certainly look like it's drying out from where it was early on. And I do, do wondered and thought about that. If we get that window, let's say we get that window mid-April, 
Uh, farmers going to be out there playing corn, and, and I'm I'm kind of in your camp too. I I don't know what that number is going to be on March 31, and it could be anything. But if there's an opportunity, I think they will plant corn. But I think the other thing, I think one of the lessons from last year was that, and I have had several discussions with farmers about this, is that you know we always were taught it was bored into our head in in, in, agron, in agronomy class. If you don't get that corn planted by May 10th, and you lose a bushel day every day that you're after that date. Well, last year that you know that that kind of got turned on its head, and I think we thought, and I think we now think that you know if we still do plant corn after May 10th and even into June, we still get pretty good yields, and that also depends on fall weather, obviously. Like we had a pretty good September, but I think there is, you know, we're going to see a lot of planting because people want to get out there and get it done. They don't want to get caught in the same boat they got caught last year with like, oh boy, it just we can't get it done, can't get it done, can't get it done. So um, I'm with you. People want to plant corn first for sure. What are we seeing uh, with the crop coming out of South America? Big. I think that's the that's the the one word I can say is big. You know, we're seeing probably 125, 100, 123, 125 million metric ton soybean crop coming out of South America. And if you look at soybean, and I'm focusing on soybeans, if you look at soybean exports in the U.S., they have really they will have dwindled off. Seasonally, you would expect that, and it looks like the Chinese now are waiting for that big Brazilian crop to come off because uh, that'll be their cheapest beans. Now, it does create some, and and Brazil's had Argentina's been a little drier, so their harvest is going a little quicker. Brazil's has gotten a good start. It's been a little wet, so it's, they've been slowed a little bit here. So nothing that I think is serious or market changing and like that, but there's just a big crop coming. But it does bring up the question about how does that second corn crop look down there? Does it get planted a little later than they would like? Uh, and if it does, then that may be a little detrimental to yield down there. So you know that second corn crop in South America, in Brazil, we'll focus on Brazil, may not be quite as big as we thought initially. Um, and so that would be that would be better for U.S. exports of corn going forward. But I do think when we look at Brazil right now, there probably is an opportunity U.S. corn exports here in the next, we're going to say, 60 to 90 days. Uh, U.S. corn exports may pick up a little bit because Brazil uh, is either priced themselves out of the market or supply has got has dwindled so much because of the short crop in the past year. Um, so and waiting for that Safrina crop to come off. So there may be some opportunities for U.S. corn exports here in the next 90 days or so. All right, Steve. It's it's just going to be interesting to see. Uh, I, I keep thinking about this grain and storage. You know, uh, yeah. when you know what what gets it out of their hands. At some point, it, you got that race going on. As you said, loss of uh, quality, and uh, but you're waiting for the right time. It's just kind of an interesting yeah. back and forth here. It is, and I think that's the thing. We, you know, I think you've got to. You're weighing a lot of things. You're weighing: Can I make money on selling this grain now? Do I have a condition where I keep track of it and be okay? Because if I don't, then I just get docked more on that damage and that grain in the bin. And if I get it out of there now, I don't have to worry about it anymore. And, again, I can take the money, and that's opportunity cost I don't have to worry about because I have the cash. And maybe I can pay some debt or pay some bills down now. Um, you know, that this time of year when you've got rents due, you've got, you've got crop input you know, costs obviously going on, fuel, all those things that, you know, we expect this time of year. So it may be worth moving that grain now um, just to have that cash in hand and, and ready to go. So I, there is a lot of things to consider here, and I, you know, I, but I do thinking about quality, thinking about price, and thinking about what's coming down the road, like as you just said, if we get windows of opportunity, we could see a lot more corn acres. Uh, it may be worth getting rid of it now and avoiding that 
which I don't know how we call it, opportunity cost to the downside um, versus upside opportunity cost. Yep, some big decisions coming up. All right, Steve, thanks a lot. No problem. Good to talk to you as always. Take care. Steve Nicholson, grain and oil seeds analyst with Robo AgriFinance. Up next, the pork industry continues to respond to imitation meat products. We'll talk about their latest campaign. That's next on AOA. There's more than one way to measure success. Knowing how to measure success on your soybean acres, that's smart. In 2019, trials across 10 Midwest states, Credence Soybeans with Liberty Link GT27 averaged 1.8 bushels per acre more than the competitive Enlist E3 soybeans and 1.5 bushels per acre more than the competitive Roundup Ready to Extend soybeans. So plant your sign of success. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Credence with Liberty Link GT27. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, the pork industry continues to respond to the challenge of these imitation meat products coming into the marketplace. And again, not not challenging their right to be in the marketplace, but the, the labeling and the marketing uh, of those products and how it can be misleading and leading to consumer confusion. If you are going through the uh, Kansas City area, you may notice uh, the latest campaign, the second campaign that the pork industry has launched now to address this issue as they have some signage, uh, some ads up saying pork barbecue. It comes from a pig, not Silicon Valley. And they also have uh, in the Kansas City Star an op-ed piece from a board member of the National Pork Producers Council. So the pork industry is getting its message out there. We're talking now with Dr. Dan Kovich. He is the Director of Science and Technology for the National Pork Producers Council. Dan, thanks for joining us again. This second campaign in the Kansas City area comes at a time when a big national pork meeting is going on in Kansas City. And uh, certainly I know the industry is hoping that as people pass through Kansas City, they'll get this message pork barbecue it comes from a pig not silicon valley that's right i guess if i've learned one thing you don't mess with barbecue in kansas city and certainly (laughs) uh, if people are going to be enjoying pork barbecue we want to make absolutely sure that that uh, barbecue came from a pig and uh and not from a plant-based source so absolutely we're you know again we want of course our producers to see that message to know that we're really getting that word out as well as others going through uh, that airport because uh, we really do think it's inappropriate to call anything that doesn't come from a pig pork. Yeah, this is, as I mentioned, your second campaign like this, getting that message out. Uh, how effective do you think they have been, and are there plans for more of these in the future? Yeah, I certainly think that they have drawn attention. You know, this is obviously something that animal agriculture has faced before, whether it be, uh, you know, in the beef space, the milk space. But now we've got a product out there that's directly calling itself pork, you know, and that is a very, very specific word that really always has only meant one thing. And, uh, you know, as we're going to do what we need to do to get that message out. So I, I can't say definitively how many more campaigns like this there will be, but we're certainly looking at every option uh, to make sure that we protect our, our good name. Sometimes you just have to point out the obvious, don't you? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, we get a lot of questions. Well, are consumers really confused? I mean, what's the big deal here? And as you said, it, it's an obvious answer. It, 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 as I've said before, it's apples and oranges. You know, just like we can't take a pork chop and sell it as a, a beef steak, uh, you shouldn't be able to take plant protein and sell it as pork. So we, again, think it's a very obvious apples and oranges sort of issue. I mentioned uh, one of your board members has an op-ed piece in the Kansas City Star. Um, I, I think what we're seeing is your industry, as well as others in agriculture, uh, are starting to are to speak out and uh, use whatever platform you can to get your message out to consumers. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that op-ed is important to hear from a producer's voice. You know, I, I do want to be clear. Our our issue here is not about competition. It's not about stopping these products. We're all for consumer choice. We know they're coming. We just have to have clear, consistent naming conventions in the food space and especially in the meat space. You know, we've operated under strict standards of identity from the Food Safety Inspection Service at the USDA for years. Um, and we just don't want other products coming in and ignoring all of that legal and historical uh, history. I know the dairy industry has been frustrated with the how slowly FDA, how slowly the government is, has responded to this issue. Are you frustrated as well? Well, certainly I think anyone in animal agriculture is frustrated that this has gone on as long as it has, you know. And, um, you know, we're certainly uh, looking at how we engage uh, both with the USDA to protect their naming conventions as well as the FDA. And, and other players. But yes, absolutely. As I said before, you know, we do have well-established conventions for naming products. And if a new player is going to come in and just start willfully ignoring those, I think everyone needs to, to pay attention and uh, really take a careful look at this issue. You know, what comes to my mind on this, because as you said, you're not questioning their their right to have a product in the marketplace. It's, it's their use of your name and your branding. Uh, I mean, to me, if it was a, if we were talking about some other areas, we would talk about copyright infringement. Is this similar? Well, you know, I, I, mean, I certainly think so. It's not, you know, we're not going to claim that the National Pork Producers Council owns the name pork. However, you know, if we look back at the entire history of the use of that word in English, in French, all the way back to the original Latin, it's always meant the meat from a pig, other than a couple of non-food meetings here in D.C., of course. But um, you know, and again, if we look at our food law, too, I think it's always just been very clear and obvious uh, what that word meant. I mean, certainly, you know, as I said, we couldn't take a pile of we couldn't take some ground pork and sell it as ground beef. That would be strictly illegal. We would get in a lot of trouble. Uh, why you can take anything else and do that uh, does remain a mystery to us. And again, you know, we need to get a handle on this. Well, I think what I really like about your ads, uh, A, the fact you're putting them out there, but two, it just uh, points to some common sense things to just stop and think about, you know, where does pork come from and really, but, you know, we can't take for granted what a consumer knows or doesn't know or is thinking or not thinking or the influences that they may be under as far as uh, ads from another, you know, that looks appealing from another uh, source. So, you, you, as I said earlier, you just have to point out the obvious. Exactly. That's what it is. All right. Well, Dan, thanks a lot. And again, we'll hope folks in that Kansas City area take a look at those ads. And uh, for all of uh, those listening, hey, 
be aware. Uh, yeah, you have a right to choose, but make sure you're not misled when you're making that choice. Dan, thanks a lot for being with us. That's Dr. Dan Kovich. He is the Director of Science and Technology for the National Pork Producers Council. Well, that will wrap it up for today. Thank you very much for joining us. Have a great day. Be sure to tune in again tomorrow right here on AOA. Weeds want to restrict your freedom and crush the spirit of your soybeans. Never fear. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of superior weed control is here with Liberty Herbicide. Stand proud with greater application flexibility, unmatched convenience, and excellent performance combined with the Liberty Link, Liberty Link GT27, and Enlist E3 trait systems. And it has no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Talk with your BASF rep or authorized retailer about Liberty Herbicide. Always read and follow label directions.